Hi everyone. For uh, module six, uh, we've been asked to discuss um, overcoming a barrier and um, how we would handle that um, as a guidance counselor and how we would uh, help support that student overcome a potential barrier that we may see. So for my barrier, I chose to focus on uh, trauma and I'll, I'll get specific by giving an example a little later, but uh, um, in short, uh, I mean, no matter what kind of trauma the student may be dealing with, without appropriate supports in place, it can be extremely difficult and sometimes impossible for a student to get past trauma. Um, this definitely will limit their ability to become the best version of themselves and um, I would argue that they're not capable of reaching their full potential if the trauma isn't properly addressed. As a counselor, if a student were to share information regarding a traumatic occurrence in their lives, either in the distant past um, that has never been addressed or something that occurred maybe more recently, I think it's important just to remember that, uh, you know, in those cases, uh, to remember that I have a legal responsibility as a counselor as well to report uh, the incident, depending on what it is, and connect the student with the appropriate supports. Um, just really remembering that it's something that I can't handle um, on my own. Um, I had a case of a sexual assault, so I can use that as an example. And uh, it occurred at a party, and I, I saw her the uh, the Monday or Tuesday following the party. And once it was reported to me, um, I immediately, uh, you know, kept her in my office, but but let her know the steps that I was going to be taking, in that I'd be connecting um, with an administrator, and that um, you know I would absolutely have to connect with uh, her parent. And that also um, chances would be very likely that uh, it would become a criminal investigation. So uh, that was a tough conversation. Um, and we, I think in, in, <laughs> in guidance, we encounter a lot of tough conversations, but they, they need to be had. Um, we can't um, get away from having those conversations. And I just felt I had to make a quick decision at that point, too, in, in you know, in do I tell her, do I not tell her? And if I tell her, she's going to start freaking out and panicking. But I really felt that the more transparent I was, um, the calmer uh, she would ultimately get. And I, I just felt that to not be honest about the steps that would likely be happening um, would create a barrier, another barrier in that she wouldn't, uh, she wouldn't trust me. And, uh, and I needed to have her trust me. So I just tried to be as honest as possible with her. So I, I think that, um, after that, like, and, and I remember speaking, obviously I spoke to my social worker at the school and she kind of just reminded me that once it's reported and, you know, the administration is involved and it's reported to the police, but even for administrators, once it becomes a criminal investigation, our role kind of takes a shift. Uh, once the student is connected to the appropriate supports, um, from a legal perspective, uh, there may be questions I can't ask or there may be conversations I can't have with her uh, if a criminal investigation is occurring. So when I dealt with that particular case, um, following that, I helped the student uh, integrate back into the classroom setting. 
um, by putting in school supports in place. It did help that the um, the male who sexually assaulted her didn't go to our school. So that helped for sure. Um, but basically helped integrate her back into the classroom, let her know that if she needed a quiet workplace, that for sure guidance could be an option for her. I notified her teachers that, you know, she was dealing with, um, with something that was difficult and that if she needed to leave at any point to allow her to leave. I spoke to her parents about uh, that before I notified teachers just to make sure that they were okay with me letting them know that there was something going on. I didn't give specific details, obviously, but I shared as much as um, her parents allowed me to share. Um, I think in cases like 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 this, when we're dealing with trauma, it's just really um, being as supportive as possible and recognizing that it is a real issue and it, it won't be easy for them to overcome. Um, and really it's, you know, my role since then has been to encourage her to continue seeking the supports that she needs um, so that, you know, once she's out of high school, she has the tools to continue reaching out for support should she need it. I do think it, it can be a lifelong thing. So um, she could be 40 one day and, and, and need the supports again. So um, I've just tried to do that. I read an article, this is kind of taking a little bit of a shift, but I read an article the other day from the Boston Globe uh, called Rethinking Resilience and Grit. And it made me think of situations like this because um, they're buzzwords and we use them often. And though I would agree that in some cases, um, and especially in this quick fix society, some students lack a certain level of resiliency, this author made me rethink how I use the word and in what context I use it. So one-on-one -on -one in my office when I'm fully aware of what the student is dealing with, like in cases such as the sexual assault, I would never use um, that word. Um, because obviously it, you're asking a little bit too much of a student if you're, if you're, if you're telling them that they have to have grit and resiliency, uh, in the face of trauma. So there was a quote that she used, um, and her name was Alyssa Court. And she basically said, when resilience is applied to at-risk kids, it implies the solutions reside within an individual and not their context. Resilience skews conversations away from equity. The assumption is that having character will help traumatized people flourish. And if they don't flourish, there is an implied lack of character. So that really stuck with me. And I, I think when we're in a classroom setting, obviously one-on-one, -on -one it's a little bit easier to, to know, do we use that word, do we not? But, you know, if they failed a test and we use the word resiliency, that's very different from using that word when they've dealt with trauma. So I think in a classroom setting, that word is used often. And uh, in a classroom setting, when there are 30 faces looking at you, you don't know which of the students have dealt with trauma and which haven't. And the last thing we would ever want to do is, is make one of them feel like um, they're not resilient enough to deal with what has happened to them. So it, it was a great article, and I just felt I, I should share it because it did make me think of... Um, our upcoming um, module on our discussion on overcoming barriers and, and that for some students, um, the barriers are pretty big and resiliency alone is not enough and we, uh, they need support. So to close, um, I just think really it's just making sure 
Uh, what we can do to help is is making sure that they have the appropriate supports. We have limitations as guidance counselors. If we're qualified teachers, we're not social workers, uh, we're not psychiatrists, we're not doctors. Um, at least, at least may, most of us aren't. Maybe some people do have those extra. Uh, some people have maybe some social work background, but but for the most part, we're not. So I think the key thing is is really supporting the student as best as we can with the tools that we have as guidance teachers, but ultimately we absolutely need to connect them to supports. Um, I think that's the best thing that we can do uh, for a student who is encountering any sort of major barrier. Hi everyone, Tanya here. This is my final podcast on differentiated instruction for module six. When we reflect on differentiated instruction in the classroom and its relation to our role as guidance counselors, we remember that the more engaged students are in their classrooms, the more likely they will be to embrace new learning opportunities. This embrace of new learning could have a direct impact on their pathway plan and could potentially open up doors that would have never been opened if they weren't able to feel a sense of engagement in their learning. The very beginning of the document, Reach Every Student Through Differentiated Instruction, sums it up perfectly when it states, as students enter adolescence, they are making what some researchers assert is the most challenging transition of their lives. To send them on that transition equipped with self-knowledge of what they are good at, what they enjoy, how to learn something that is challenging for them, and conditions under which they can do their best work, is to provide the best possible support for their success in school and beyond. So how do we do this? If I were to assist colleagues in helping to build differentiation in their classrooms, the first step I would give them would be to know their students. Once we come to know who our students are, we begin to understand what will engage them and how they will best learn. I would share with them that while I was in the classroom myself, either in religious education or in English, I would make use of station activities often. The same learning goals would be addressed through different ways. Students were aware of the key learning goals for the day, but would then choose how they wanted to learn them. One station would include maybe an article with some reflection questions for that independent worker who wanted to zone in on their own. Other stations would include a YouTube video or song lyrics that asked members in those stations to form either a large group or smaller groups to discuss guiding questions that would be provided. I'd have about five stations in the room with a differentiated approach to address the same learning goals. For formal assessments, I also would create a differentiated approach to assessments for some of my units where I would give students the option between a formal test or an assignment. I use this approach often when I taught the university college level world religions course. I would assign the date and split the room up And oftentimes, I'd have half the room writing a test and the other half silently working on an assignment. Students knew that if they chose the assignment, they would likely bring work home. The 76-minute period wouldn't be enough time for them to finish everything up. However, they preferred that approach to their assessment and knew that condition came with that choice. The same expectations were addressed in different ways, and regardless of the choice students made, they were able to demonstrate the same key learnings. As guidance counselors, we can assist our colleagues 
by not only sharing best practice, but also by going into their classrooms to help, or we can pull out groups of students into guidance to support their plan for differentiation. Though I know this can't happen often due to the demands of the role, oftentimes as guidance counselors, our roles do involve going into the classrooms or providing workshop opportunities. In these cases, however, I would just ensure that I would be more deliberate about my goal to include differentiated instruction to the plan. And there we have it, my final podcast for this course. And prior to this course, I only listened to podcasts and never made them. I'm thankful we were given the opportunity to learn how to create our own podcasts, as this is something I may use in the future. I really doubt I'll get famous, but if I do, Dan, you'll forever get special credit for encouraging me to dive into this realm. All jokes aside, enjoy your Sunday, everyone. And if it's as icy where you are as it is in Waterloo Region, be safe and stay warm. And finally, as the holiday season approaches quickly, I hope everyone has a restful break and a very Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for listening.